For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon, More Than Conquerors, Part 2, Romans chapter 8, particularly verses 31 through 39. So welcome back. If you're just now joining us, we are working together through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where we have arrived now at a pivotal place in the progress of this book together. We have come to the end of chapter 8, to what are essentially Paul's closing remarks now in a magnificent case that he's been building. It's a case that he started way back in chapter 4, a case that he's been building and working on through chapters 5, 6, 7, and now into chapter 8. And that case is essentially Paul's case for the assurance of the believer. Paul wants those who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to have an unquestionable security in the work that God has done to save sinners. The work that God has done through the person of his son, applied by the Spirit uh, for those who have been justified by faith. It's his case for the assurance of the one who has placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now we began examining Paul's closing remarks last week by considering Paul's evidence for that case. And his evidence consists of all those arguments that Paul has been building, Romans chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. His evidence are all those points, all those arguments along the way that have led us to the conclusions that we're examining in our text this morning. Namely, his case consisting of these facts, that justification or right standing with God is through the instrumentality of faith alone apart from our works. Brothers and sisters, if it depended upon our works Uh, we would be doomed. But it is through the instrumentality or through the means of faith so that it might be according to grace. And if it's all of grace and nothing to do with your work, then it is sure, it is certain to all the seed of Abraham, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Having been justified then through the means of faith, we have, Paul says, as a present reality, we have peace with God. God has reconciled us to himself. He has adopted us into his household. We have become adopted sons in the kingdom. He has reconciled us to himself. God accomplishes that reconciliation. He accomplishes our justification, our right standing with God, through an astounding feat of declaring unrighteous sinners to be righteous. Now, how in the world does God do that? How is it that God declares a sinner to be righteous in his sight? Well, Paul explains that to us. It's through the free gift of an imputed righteousness. He takes the righteousness of his own son, the active and passive perfect obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts it to your account by his grace as a free gift. And on the basis of that imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are declared to be righteous in his sight as though we had never sinned, and as though we had perfectly obeyed all of the law, we are seen as righteous in his sight. Now, he explains that that's possible only because of federal headship. That's Romans chapter 5. That we 
having once been represented by our federal head, Adam, and fallen in Adam, can be represented by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, can be united to Jesus Christ through faith. And through, through federal headship or federal representation, God provides us an imputed righteousness. Having explained our relationship to remaining sin then in chapter 6, having explained our relationship to God's law in chapter 7, both of those pertaining to our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul leads us then to the inevitable truth of chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore at this present time no condemnation to those who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith. What about my sin? Paul's talked about that. There is therefore now no condemnation. What about the law? God is, he's talked about that, right? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. These are truths that we're to embrace through faith, amen? And those truths, making their way from our head down into our heart, should impact the way that we think. It should inform our faith, and these are things that we trust the Lord for. Paul leads us to these inevitable implications of our salvation. Now, furthermore, in chapter 8, We've been indwelt by God's Spirit. God has given believers His Spirit to indwell us, and His Spirit indwelling us is the guarantee that all of those other blessings will come. He is the guarantee, the pledge of our future inheritance. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will inherit together with Him. With that in mind, then, the trials and the sufferings of this present experience in the Christian life, this present age, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. Rather than being indications of God's wrath toward us, trials and tribulations in this life are in fact used by God in every way to further sanctify us to himself, to further refine and purify our faith, to further conform us into the image of his Son, and through that, he works all things together, even our trials, even our difficulties, even our adversity. He works all things together for our good. And in opening up then all of those wonders of the gospel, of God's salvation of sinners, Paul leads us then to the conclusion of his case, verse 31. What then shall we say to all these things? What are we going to say to all of this exalted theology Romans 4, 5, 6, 7. From the beginning of the book, what are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can stand opposed to us? It's the only rational, the only reasonable resolution to all that Paul has said. God is for us, and therefore no one can stand against us. In the words of David from Psalm 56, in God I have put my trust, therefore I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? When I cry out to you, God, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. And how do we know? How do we know that God himself is for us? How do we know that God is working all things together for our good, for our ultimate good, for our temporal good, and for our everlasting good? How do we know these things to be true? Because, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but rather delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's a rhetorical question, brothers and sisters. He will. He will. From the greater to the lesser, 
if God has not withheld from us the greatest good imaginable, the gift of his only begotten son, then every other lesser, lesser blessing will certainly, will necessarily flow to us by his grace. It's this supreme gift of God's love that guarantees all the others. There's never been a moment in which so great an outcome depended with such weight upon so great an act. Never been a moment like that one as our redemption depended entirely upon the willingness of God, the Father, to deliver up his own Son and that to the horrors of our accumulated wrath poured out at Calvary. That cup would be consumed to the dregs for us in our place. And how, having delivered him up for us, having delivered up that which was most beloved to him, is he now going to refuse us any lesser thing? Paul says, absolutely not. It is through the sacrifice of his own son that God, by his spirit, then gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, not withholding any good thing from those who trust him. And if God has proven, proven that he is entirely for us through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, then who or what could possibly stand against us? No one will stand against you and no thing. Do you see? Paul has provided us through the theology of this letter a solid foundation for a strong and confident assurance. Ours is a hope that will not disappoint. You can put all of your eggs in that one basket. We should rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. When we face sin, when we face difficulty, when we face adversity, when we face persecution, we should rejoice with a confidence that God is working all that together for our good, that he withholds no good thing from us who love him, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that he will see it through. We will be with him in heaven. Amen. Those whom he has foreloved in eternity, he will bring to glory. That which he has decreed in eternity, he will bring to pass. We have that as a solid foundation. Now that brings us this morning to verse 33. Wait, there's more. <laughs> Paul is not done yet. And Paul now continues to add, verses 33 and 34, he continues to add to the implications of his case. Verse 33 then. Who then shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now remember, remember from last week, Paul is teaching us how to reason from Scripture. The reason that these questions come up is because there may be those who would make a charge against God's elect. Your own conscience may make its charge against you, one of God's elect. The enemy, the adversary, may make his charge against you, one of God's elect. And so these questions come up because that's a reality that Christians often have to deal with in this Christian life. How are we to respond to those fears, those doubts, those concerns when they arise? Paul is teaching us how to reason from the scriptures. He's explained the gospel to us. And Paul explains or expects through that glorious theology of our gospel that we will take those doctrines which we have learned, 
We'll connect the dots along the way. We'll meditate on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We'll see how God himself has taken the work of Jesus Christ and applied it on behalf of sinners to redeem them, to justify them. And having done so, having reasoned through that theology, that good theology then bolsters our faith, fuels our faith, drives our faith, gives us a confidence, not a confidence in ourselves, not a confidence in our own, in our own work, but a confidence in what God has done through Jesus Christ. Do you see? If your confidence is in yourself, if you somehow think I'm strong enough to make it, I'm strong enough to do it, I can handle this, that is a recipe for disaster every single time. Do you see? You're not going to make it on that basis. Paul gives you the theology that we're to reason through. He gives you the doctrines that we're to think about and meditate on. He gives you the person and work of Jesus Christ wrapped up in the gospel for us to consider when we face difficulty. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. That, the, that theology should impact the way that we think. It should impact what we believe, what we value, what we treasure. And impacting what we treasure, what we value, that should impact how we live, how we act, how we conduct ourselves, how we respond to difficulty when it arises. That light should produce heat in the life of the believer. Brothers and sisters, it should impact how we worship. Amen? Should impact how we worship. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, the one who made an end to all my sin. Those aren't empty platitudes. And that's not cotton candy theology, brothers and sisters. That's eternally significant, groundbreaking, granite foundation building theology that will help you live your life Help you love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Help you persevere and endure to the end through difficulty, through adversity, through trials, through tribulations. Do you see? That light produces heat. That hymn based upon the exalted theology of Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. The Bible. The gospel. Paul gives us the foundation upon which our confidence is to be built. We're to embrace that foundation by faith and build on it. Amen? Build on it. Build a life on it. When assaulted by the world, the flesh, or the devil, when our assurance is undermined, when our confidence is shattered, we're to think on all that the, the, the Lord has taught us through his word, and we're to trust in him. We're to think on all of this theology that Paul has taken, taken us through. And we're to question with Paul, who in the world can stand against me? Who can rightly bring a charge against me? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who can condemn you? No one. If God has justified you, no one. Do you see? Particularly in this battle, in this life, Christians face the reality of their own remaining corruption. And there's nothing I would submit to you that will wreak havoc in the life of a Christian more than his own remaining sin, his own indwelling sin. Many, many, many find themselves in anguish of heart over their own sin, over that principle of sin, Paul says, that remains in my members. And having cried out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, sometimes they forget 
to look and say, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes they forget to look in the right places and to consider right things and to remember that good theology. And rather than looking at the right places and working through that great and glorious theology to bolster their confidence and to fuel their faith, they rather plunge themselves into further despair by placing themselves back under the condemnation of the law. They charge themselves with the guilt of their sin. They're back under the condemnation of God. And God is somehow frowning upon them with wrath rather than with pity. That despair, that despair, that anguish of heart is further compounded by the fact that we know that those accusations against us are true. (laughs) Because we sin, don't we? It's that tendency to fear. It's that tendency to doubt that prompts the questions in our text. Who is there? Verse 33. Who is there who is able to successfully bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there who is able to condemn you? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In the words of one commentator, it's as though Paul were saying, by what abuse of righteous principles can anyone deny to me an infallible assurance of my final salvation? In other words, they would have to abuse these righteous principles in order to do such a thing. No one, no one, no one can deny to me If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting him alone for salvation, then there is no one that can deny to you an infallible assurance of final salvation. The the foundation of our salvation is solid. Do you see? It is solid. The question then is rhetorical. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer to that rhetorical question is no one. In other words, who is there who may successfully lay any offense to your charge? The obvious answer, no one. Now notice with me first, Paul's use of that word elect. Notice that he does not ask the question this way, who shall bring a charge against sinners? There are in fact many sinners who are guilty before God himself. Condemned already, John 3 says, because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. Condemned already. The charges against them will stand unless those charges are discharged in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God himself will bring a charge against them in the last day, according to his word, and they will perish in their sins. He does not say, who shall bring a charge against sinners? There will be charges brought against sinners in that day. But he also doesn't ask the question this way. Who shall bring a charge against believers? Do you notice that? The answer would still be the same. No one. No one will bring a charge against genuine believers. But he doesn't ask the question in that way. Paul intentionally puts the question to us this way. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's intentional. We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures, which means that God doesn't only inspire or breathe out the concepts God inspires or breathes out the very words, the tenses of the words, the cases of the words, the grammar. God breathes out his word. And Paul chooses this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses this word specifically. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In putting the question that way, Paul looks 
past our believing to God's choosing. Do you see? He looks behind our believing and he looks to the foundation, the ground of this in God's choosing. What kind of confidence would I have if my confidence were built upon my own believing? Upon my own actions, upon my own ability, I would have no confidence. One minute confidence, uh, very presumptuous and as high as a mountaintop, and the next second, absolutely zero confidence, at plunging myself into despair because I know I can't do it. Right? If our faith is a work, that's what you get. But Paul looks behind our believing to God's own choosing. And Paul reminds us that even before our believing, God had determined to set his electing love upon us. And the reason, the reason, brothers and sisters, that you are a believer, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the reason that you are a believer is because God chose you in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. Even your faith is a gift of pure, undeserved grace. Those whom he foreloved in eternity, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he effectually called to himself, causing them to be born again, giving them a new heart, putting his spirit within them, causing them to walk in his statutes. And it's those that he then justifies, those that he glorifies. So Paul asks, is there any way possible Think for a moment with me. Meditate on that question. Is there any way possible that those who are the elect of God will one day be condemned by God? Those whom God has elected in eternity past, is there any way that a single one of them will ever be condemned? The answer to that question is no. No way. Why is that? Because God has decreed their conformity to his son, and has decreed their glorification. God has decreed to call them to himself, to justify them, to make them one of his own. And his plans, his counsel will come to pass. It cannot be frustrated. It will not be thwarted. There will be no one, no one, who will be able to bring a charge against them. Do you see? God is the one who justifies them. He's the one who has elected them. He is the one who justifies. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God is the one, God is the one himself who has pronounced his justifying sentence in their favor. Is there any court above his? There's no court above. Is there any judge above him? Is there anyone else that you can appeal to? Some really like holy grandmother or maybe on your mom's side? Like, no, <laughs> there is no court of appeals. God alone is judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead. God himself is the one who justifies. There is no court of appeals. There is no higher court. There is no higher judge. And it is God who has pronounced his justifying sentence in their favor. And having been justified, now we have present reality, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There may be, brothers and sisters, there may be many accusers, many accusers, many accusers, many slanderers, but their accusations are of no account. You'll stand or fall before the judge of all the earth. You'll stand or fall before 
our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one who declares them to be righteous. And God declares them to be righteous through faith in his only begotten son. His only begotten son, having gone to the cross in their place, having died for them as their substitute. Believers may suffer accusations. Accusations from the wicked, accusations from their own conscience, accusations from the adversary. But those accusations are of no account. It is God who justifies. For the one who has placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those accusations are simply groundless. But how do we deal biblically with them when they come? How do we deal biblically when our conscience accuses, when the adversary accuses, when the wicked accuse? How do we deal biblically with those accusations when they come? There are many examples of this in the text of Scripture, and a couple come to mind. In particular, accusations by the adversary himself. Satan is called, uh, I believe that's uh, Revelation chapter 17, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He stands in the courtroom of heaven, as it were, before the throne of God, accusing the brethren day and night. We're going to talk about that in a moment. That's until, until he's cast out. But he's called the accuser of the brethren. You remember, if you will, um, Satan standing in the courtroom of heaven, accusing Job, right? In the opening accounts of that book, Satan standing there accusing Job. Job's no saint, right? Job is described by God as a righteous man. Satan would say, Job is not righteous. Essentially, Satan is saying, Job's profession is false. Job is a hypocrite. Job fakes love for God, because of what God does for him. It's because Job wants to be blessed. Because Job wants to be prosperous. You may say, because you want to go to heaven. That's the only reason you would keep on showing up. You're a hypocrite. You're a fraud. You don't even know if your love is genuine. <laughs> can, you, can you hear the little red guy on your shoulder? Like, <laughs> swiping his, you know, pitched fork at you. Um, he fakes a love for God because of what God does for him. Job's a fraud. But you can see in, that, in those accusations against Job that the adversary is also accusing God, isn't he? God's boast in Job is a lie. His verdict, God's verdict in Job's case is unjust. You may sometimes think that to yourself when you're dealing with your sin. Are you really going to stand and say that God's verdict is a lie, is unjust, when he sent his own son to the cross to die for sin? That's what Satan is saying. God's verdict is unjust. God's verdict is unfounded. We see another example of those accusations on the part of the, the enemy, the adversary, in Zechariah 3. Turn to Zechariah 3 with me. Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3 is one of the seven night visions given to the prophet Zechariah. One of seven, the fourth of seven in particular. In this vision, we see Joshua the high priest standing before the judgment seat. The, the children of Israel have, have uh, largely come back from exile. They have reinstituted or they're restoring temple worship in Jerusalem. And Joshua 
is being appointed high priest. And so Joshua the high priest is standing before the judgment seat. He is, as it were, before the bar of God's justice in the heavenly courtroom. And as Joshua stands there as high priest, he represents the people. If you remember, the high priest upon his shoulder and upon his breastplate, essentially over his heart, would carry graven precious precious stones that had been um, sewn into his breastplate into the most holy place with him. It was as though he carried the people of God over his heart into the most holy place as he atoned for them before the mercy seat. Okay? So he represents the people, represents the people of Israel, and as we'll see, he represents the future people of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua is typological of the coming Messiah. So this is the scene then in Zechariah 3, chapter 1, where we pick up the account. Then he showed me Joshua, showed Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. In Revelation chapter 12, there are interesting connections between this text and Revelation 12. It's Revelation 12 that describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. His opposition to Joshua fits a pattern, if you remember, that began back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Ultimately, the opposition of, of Satan here to Joshua is the opposition of Satan to God himself, particularly the second person of the Trinity who stands next to him, the angel of the Lord who is standing here with Joshua. Joshua, like you and I, we stand accused by the accuser of the brethren, so to speak. And when the high priest enters the most holy place, he would do so with those 12 stones um, woven into or sewn into his breastplate, carrying us into the most holy place over his heart, so to speak. He bore God's people before the throne of God. And the only way that the high priest could ever do that was on the day of atonement once per year because of the atoning work, because of the blood of the covenant, the blood of the sacrifice. It was that that the high priest would enter upon the blood of bulls and goats and would have to do that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. But now, our Lord Jesus Christ, having at once purged our sins by the sacrifice of himself, he sits down and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The Lord Jesus Christ has done it. It's finished. Verse 2. This is the scene. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord does that most emphatically at the cross. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. He defeats Satan at the cross. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. You notice the electing language there. The Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, the fire of God's judgment had been poured out. The people had been exiled in Babylon. But now, as if plucked from the fire, you see Joshua here, restored. And Joshua represents the people coming back from exile, restoring worship in the temple. Plucked from the fire of judgment, so to speak, God has saved himself a remnant. That remnant represented here by Joshua the high priest. And he's done so according to his sovereign choice. Verse 3. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, unheard of for the high priest. There, was, um, there were cleansing ceremonies that the high priest would go through before being presented in worship to God. And here Joshua, despite all of that, despite what was written under the law, here Joshua stands with filthy garments and Satan standing to his right side to accuse him. Can you see 
how Joshua, even looking at his own filthy garments, might think to himself, and Satan's got a case. You see? Does Satan have a case? In other words, the accuser of the brethren thinks he has a case. Joshua is not fit to be high priest. He's standing there in defiled garments, shamefully, a shamefully defiled sinner, defiling the holy place of the temple with his very presence. And just like in the case of Job, the accuser opposes not only Joshua here, but accuses the Lord himself. How could God consort with such sinners? How is it that God could admit such a high priest clothed there in filthy, defiled garments? Do you see the accusation against God too? How could he actually accept worship from such a vile and filthy people? And again, this is the enmity that we're introduced to in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The enmity that lies between the seed of the serpent, the serpent and his seed, and the seed of the woman. Joshua here representing the seed of the woman. <laughs> and the Lord rebukes him for it. He would continue to rebuke the accuser. The Lord would continue to rebuke the accuser until he finally defeats him at full, in full at the cross. Where at the cross, he discharges every debt owed by his people. He secures for them a perfect righteousness and satisfaction of the law's demand. The righteousness imputed to them is a free gift of God's grace through faith, whereby they are cleansed. Amen? But it's on this basis, then, that the Lord rejects the charges of the adversary in verse 4. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, to explain what this represents, he says to Joshua, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. Do you see how removing his filthy garments is representative or symbolic for removing his iniquity? Right? Make that connection in your head for a moment. See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Rich robes, the opposite of his filthy clothes. Do you see? This is what is referred to as divestiture and investiture. Divestiture and investiture. Putting off his filthy clothes, putting on righteous robes. Putting off sin and putting on righteous garments. Putting on priestly righteousness. This is forgiveness and imputation. Forgiveness and the cre accrediting of Christ's own righteousness. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's not just enough to take it off, right? You have to put on that righteousness. Justification is two parts, two parts. It's a forgiveness of sin, a pardon for sin, an expiation of our guilt, and it is an investiture with the righteousness of the God-man himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. That was a, a priestly garment. Uh, oh, that was for royal high priests. And remember, Joshua is representing who? Representing us. Representing the people of God. So verse 5, they put a clean turban on his head. And they put the clothes on him. The angel of the Lord stood by. And there's a lot more going on here that we have time 
this morning to consider the packed text. But think about this with me. The clothing of Joshua answers the rejection or um, answers to the rejection of the accuser. It answers to Satan's accusations. Satan accuses, who is this defiled so-called priest? And the angel of the Lord comes in, takes off his filthy clothes, and clothes him with robes of righteousness. It's an answer to Satan's accusations that this takes place. It's a, sim- it's a symbol. It's symbolic. It signifies, it signifies that all of the charges of the accuser have been brought to nothing. They've all been cleared. Joshua has been cleared of all those charges. Brothers and sisters, it's a picture of justification. Right? It's a picture of our justification. No one shall bring a charge, any charge, any charge against God's elect because God is the one who justifies them. And they are, present tense, justified. They have, present tense, been reconciled. They have peace with God. It is God who declares them to be righteous in the courtroom of heaven. And he does that in rejection of the accuser's charges. Do you see? He doesn't do so based on anything they've done or anything that they haven't done. Joshua doesn't merit this himself. God does it for him through the person and work of his own son, who, by the way, is the angel of the Lord standing by, the second person of the Trinity. He does it on the basis of the finished work of Christ alone, culminating in his death at the cross on our behalf as our substitute. Justification comprised of two necessary parts. All of our sins imputed to him, divestiture. And him boring the punishment for them, bearing the punishment for them that we deserved, and his perfect obedience, both active and passive, imputed to us, investiture. So that being united to Jesus Christ through faith, God counts us as righteous, and he treats us accordingly. He treats us as those who are righteous in his sight. Why does God do that? How? How does God do that? The one who presides over the Supreme Court, the one who presides over that court from which there is no appeal, and if God, the Supreme Judge, has passed a justifying sentence in my favor based upon the work of his own son as my substitute, then there is no one, no one, who may bring a charge against me. No one may do it. Every accusation, brothers and sisters, is summarily dismissed. Clear case, isn't it? It's a powerful case. Incidentally, it's in Revelation chapter 12 that the accuser of the brethren is cast down to the earth. If you read that account, we're going to look at that account tonight in walking through Revelation. It's a a glorious uh, account. He is cast out of the heavenly courtroom. He happens to be cast down to the earth. And he cast, he's cast down with much wrath because he knows his days are short. And we're going to see a demonic plague that is poured out on those who dwell upon the earth tonight from uh, Revelation chapter 9. Our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, is now enthroned there in heaven. And rather than the accuser of the brethren standing there, making his case against us day and night before the throne of God, Jesus Christ the righteous is now seated there at the right hand of the majesty on high, always living to make intercession for us. No matter the accuser, no matter the accusations, it is God who justifies, and our righteousness is seated there next to him. The God-man seated there next to him. 
Our own conscience may accuse us. The adversary himself may accuse us. It is God who justifies. Back in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I love this quote from Luther. Given it before, I'll give it again. I just, I think this is terrific. <laughs> we need to have this kind of attitude. Luther said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is there, I shall be also. <laughs> That's a triumphant declaration that is a faith-filled embrace of all that Paul has taught us in this text. Do you see? Luther gets it. Luther gets it. We need to get it. <laughs> it is God who elects. It is God who justifies. Lastly, it is Jesus Christ who has done all that is necessary so that you and I are eternally saved. Eternally saved. The, foundation of, the foundational work of Jesus Christ is represented here in verse 34. And his work is represented here by four granite slabs stacked one upon the other for a firm foundation for our assurance that in verse 34. First, notice with me, it is Christ who died. The substitutionary, sacrificial, sin-bearing death of God's only begotten Son on the cross. It is Christ who died. Verse 32, God spared not his own Son, but delivered him up to death for us all. God delivered him up to the accumulated wrath of God that was due our sin. And he died in our place as our substitute. We ourselves cannot be condemned. Do you see? God is not going to punish your sins twice. He's not, going to, he's not going to punish his sins upon you, having already punished them in the person of his own son. What absurd notion is that? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you see? He himself has already been condemned in our place. The punishment that we deserved has been exhausted upon him. He drank that cup to the dregs. The wrath of God has already been propitiated. It's been extinguished, exhausted upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. On what basis should you and I then be unquestionably assured of heaven? On what basis? Christ died. And he died for us. It is Christ who died. Do you see? Second. It is furthermore Christ who also is risen. He has been raised from the death. Death and the grave have no more claim upon him. And we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that death, sin, and the grave have no more claim on us. The fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead proves the sufficiency of his atoning work for sinners. Death has no claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. Sin has no more claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. The curse has no more claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. The law has no more claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. Romans chapter 6 verse 5. And if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly then we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Who is he who can condemn us? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Amen, right? Third, it is Christ who is even at the right hand of God. Referring to the present heavenly session of the Lord Jesus Christ as the glorified God-man. It is Jesus Christ who upon his resurrection from the dead ascended bodily into heaven a glorified human body, a glorified human soul, now eternally joined to his divine nature forever, a glorified God-man who has ascended bodily and now sits at the right hand of the majesty where he is now enthroned as the promised Davidic king over an everlasting kingdom which is never passing away. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He sat down at the right hand in the place of power, in a place of honor, in a place of authority, in the place of dominion. And brothers and sisters, where he is, we most certainly will be also. But where he is, we are there now. And in what what way are we there now? Just as Joshua the high priest stands in the courtroom of heaven, so to speak, before the bar of God's God's justice, bearing over his heart the people of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is seated there now. We're graven upon his hand, graven upon his heart, and no one and no thing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It has been done. We are at the right hand of the majesty in the person of our representative. Do you see? We are united to him. Where he is, there we are. He represents us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Fourth and lastly, it is Christ who also makes intercession for us. This should absolutely seal our assurance. Having laid down his life for us on the cross, having delivered up his body in death to redeem us, He was raised from the dead. He ascended bodily into heaven. He now forever lives as our great high priest. That which Joshua was merely typological of now has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our living great high priest, always eternally living to make intercession for us. In the words of Dr. Murray, communicating the intimacy of, and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. What is Dr. Murray saying there? The picture of the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the majesty, always living to make intercession for us, pictures or signifies our Lord's preoccupation, his loving care and provision for our eternal security in him. Do you see? He loves us. And one of the ways in which he pours out his love for us is by always living to make intercession for us before the throne of God at the right hand of the majesty. Nothing speaks more clearly of his ongoing love for his own than his current session for his own redeemed people as their faithful high priest. Not one of us will ever be lost but he provides for us and cares for us until we are all brought to glory. What is the basis of Paul's confidence? 
person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many choose, many choose today to comfort themselves or to placate a guilty conscience with a, with a presumptuous or with a false assurance. There are many who do that. They fail to deal biblically with their sin before God. I remember having a conversation with a guy years ago, and you know, I was preaching the gospel, and I was a bit of a bull in a china shop, and he essentially, you know, asked me one day, you know, what is the big deal? And uh, it's like it's the gospel, man, you know. Um, But he said to me, um, I've just never seen myself as a sinner, but believed himself to be a Christian. Many comfort themselves with a presumptuous or a false, a spurious assurance. They fail to deal biblically with their sin before God. They don't see or acknowledge the depth of their sin. They don't see their sin as exceedingly sinful. And they comfort themselves with a false peace that comes from ignoring their sin. They comfort themselves with a false peace that comes from neglecting their sin, from refusing to acknowledge their sin. I'm just... don't. Not a sinner. I don't see myself as a bad. Jesus Christ did not come to the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. That wasn't Paul here in Romans chapter 8. So we understand. Right? Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners. First Timothy chapter 1. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Paul knew that he deserved hell. Even after his conversion. Paul understood the devastation that sin causes, the depth of his remaining sin. Paul had a sensitive conscience. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? The assurance that Paul himself has has cultivated through a faith-filled embrace of these truths is the assurance that Paul wants to cultivate in you and I through a faith-filled embrace of these glorious truths we've been studying through the book of Romans. And that, brothers and sisters, causes us to deal biblically with our sin. Not to sweep it under the rug, not to turn a blind eye to it, not to ignore it or neglect it, but to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, repenting of our sin, humbling ourselves, and turning to him in faith, knowing that he is the one who has dealt with our sin completely and fully at the cross, knowing the high cost of our redemption, putting our faith and trust in him. We're to deal biblically with our sin. And we deal biblically with our sin by putting it through, as it were, this glorious truth, this gospel, putting our faith and trust in him. It would be better for you to be plagued with conviction than it would be to be deceived by a false peace. Don't allow yourself a false peace Deal biblically with your sin before God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look upon all that God has done for sinners and and trust yourself to him. Paul wants to cultivate within you, within me, a biblical assurance that is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone on behalf of sinners. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? When you understand all that God has done for sinners, you would say with Paul, none of those things will ever ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are more than 
conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this vaulted exposition of the work that you've done on behalf of sinners through the person and work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the benefits and the blessings of that work applied to us by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this word brought with weight upon our understanding by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that your word would find a clear reception within our minds and would sink from our minds into our heart where it is planted in fertile soil whereby it springs up through faith to produce fruit for your glory, fruit of love and adoration, fruit of obedience, fruit of gratitude, the fruit of joy, fruit of hope, the fruit of faith. May you be magnified in it. May our Lord Jesus Christ be exalted. Spirit of God, thank you for your work. Help us now to think and meditate on these things and shape us and mold us now into the image of your Son whereby we may offer you praise and worship that is in accord with the truth. In spirit and in truth for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.